You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him, so that man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out, de- casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his, plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Luke. Thanks be to God. Um, Let me pray, but we're going to need to give good focus to this passage, so let's pray first. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we pray that your spirit might add and come upon us so that the fullness of your word and all of its power might form us and shape us and change us. Speak to us through your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. you know, one documentary that I've recently watched, it was probably one of the most terrifying documentaries I've ever seen, is the documentary on uh, Netflix called Madoff, A Monster of Wall Street. I don't know if anyone else has seen it. Um, the reason why I found it so terrifying is uh, the ways in which, uh, not so much sort of what happened, I understand what happened, but the, the thing I found absolutely terrifying is the ways in which investors and feeder funds and just ordinary people with wealth uh, sort of made a decision to choose willful blindness in the face of, of gains uh, rather than to do due diligence as to how Madoff was making money sort of always above everyone else. There was some good quotes in, in the particular documentary. One quote that came out uh, from one of the investigators 
is he said that uh, the, the banks and the private funds, they were paid so much to look the other way that many of the feeder funds were incentivized not to ask questions, to be willfully blind, if you will, and not get too intrusive into the Madoff scheme. Uh, this to me is what was so terrifying, is this human propensity to choose or to um, participate in willful blindness. It's not just when we can get greater returns than any other investment banker can offer. Um, we are people who know that we can only tell people what we see, and we know that if we don't see something, then we don't have to speak up about it. And so I think I can't be the only one who finds themselves in a situation where a friend's maybe drinking too much or abusing a substance too much, and rather than do the hard work of trying to deal with it, we you know, decide to put some boundaries in our life between the relationships so that we have a, a measure of willful blindness, or you know, maybe we see uh, a neighbor where there's signs of conflict, maybe even abuse going on in the house next to us. And rather than sort of wade into what could be a very complicated situation, we opt to keep our distance and to sort of create some sort of boundaries. We turn away from any interactions with this neighbor because willful blindness is just more attractive than getting uh, involved. You know, we, we know our kids are spending time on the internet and we know there's ways to check as to what they're seeing on the internet, but there's a temptation towards willful blindness because we just don't know what we're gonna find and we don't know what we're going to do. What is it about us as human beings that have almost an instinct, uh, this incredible skill, this sort of calculus that we can do without being taught uh, to opt for willful blindness over responsibility? What is it about us? Now, it might not be immediately obvious, and we are going to have to move somewhat quick through this passage, but this passage is all about willful blindness, okay? That's, that's what Jesus is dealing with in this particular passage. And what we're going to see is that he's going to confront willful blindness first. Then he's going to challenge our willful blindness before he finally offers a treatment for our willful blindness. So we're going to see Jesus confronting willful blindness, challenging, uh, or warning us, sorry, of the dangers of willful blindness, confronting us, warning us before finally giving us the treatment. I'm going to try to move fast and not speak fast, which I'm not great at, so sorry in advance. So first, let's look at the ways Jesus confronts our willful blindness. Now, all week I was trying to, I was struggling with, how does this healing relate to, you know, what comes afterwards? We have this healing at the top of the story, and it's almost as though it's inconsequential, and then we have these discussions of this unforgivable sin, and trees, and fruits. How do these things relate? And it took me a while, and as I was exploring, I, I couldn't see it. Lyndon, unfortunately, was in the office when I kind of had my aha moment. Um, but this, this story at the beginning really actually is a picture that's going to overshadow all that Jesus says and does. It's, it's going to be like an object lesson to what Jesus wants to say. Because this is the first time in, in Matthew's gospel, one of the few times where we hear of someone having two disorders, both blind and mute. And we find that Jesus heals both of them so that the person can speak and can see. And this isn't an accident. This is Jesus with this miracle confronting his opponents, these Pharisees, in front of them. He's, he's going right after them with this miracle to teach them something. Because if you look at this passage, it's all about how words are used. In fact, it ends by saying, by your, by your words, by your speech, you're going to be justified. This passage is all about how we talk and what we say, whether it's blasphemous or truthful words. And yet here's a man who can't use words. He's mute and he's blind. Jesus is using this as an object lesson. He heals this man, but he's both mute and blind. And there's two immediate responses. The people say, is this the son of David? 
our great king, our hero, the national leader who will again restore prosperity, who will bring healing, who will bring hope to our people. Is this the son of David? And the religious establishment, and we talked about last week, the Pharisees, the teacher's pets, how do they respond? They see the mute and blind man healed, and their words reveal something about what they see or cannot see. They say, they can't deny the, the, the power of what Jesus has done, so they question the source, and they say, he's doing this by black magic. Sure, he sure did heal this person, but he healed them through black magic. He did it by Beelzebub. Beelzebub was this sort of slang term to talk about Satan, which actually comes from the way other nations spoke of the deceiver or the evil one. Lord of the flies, Lord that flies, Lord over the pits. He did this by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus is with this healing confronting them. He's saying, by their speech, it reveals a certain blindness. They can't speak correctly because they can't see correctly. That's why we have this two-pronged healing of this, the sight and the blind. Maybe I could illustrate what's going on a bit this way. I don't know if anyone else has seen this invisible gorilla experiment. Uh, Psychologists set it up. There's two teams of three, one wearing all black uniforms, one wearing all white. And you're told that both teams have a basketball, and they're passing the basketball to people and kind of moving in random orders. And you're given instructions before the experiment starts that you're to count how many times the white team passes the basketball amongst themselves. Okay? It sounds like no one else, you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy, but this is a real thing. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. The white team's passing the ball back and forth, and you're counting. One, two, three. I think you get up to about 15. Not to, to spoiler alert if you watch it later. I think there's 15 passes. And at the end, uh, the, the person who's overseeing, the kind of narrator of the experiment says, how many passes were there? And you know, someone like me, who's definitely going to get this right, screams 15 with confidence. And then the narrator says, did you see the gorilla? And you think, what are you talking about, gorilla? And sure enough, the narrator shows a replay of the video, and from one side of the screen out walks a gorilla, like a a full-grown adult wearing a gorilla suit. And in the middle of the camera, they pound their chest like they're King Kong or something, ready to conquer the world, and then they walk off screen. And the first time I was exposed to this experiment, I did not see the gorilla. And in fact, when I saw the replay of the gorilla, I thought, that's not what happened. And I rewatched the video from the beginning, and sure enough, the gorilla's there. And now every time I watch it, all I see is the gorilla. Now, why do I share this? This is an an experiment that shows a sort of blindness that we can get when we are extremely focused. When we we have our mind set on one thing, we can be blinded to things around us. There's a lot we could deduce and learn from this. But what I'm trying to say is this. Jesus is confronting these Pharisees. And he's saying, you are so incredibly focused on ushering in the kingdom of God. and, And right moral order, being very religious, very put together, doing things perfectly You're counting the passes perfectly that you're missing the gorilla. And the gorilla is the kingdom of God is among you. And you cannot see it. You cannot see it because you are blind, because you you have willfully chose to focus on all these things which distract you from seeing the kingdom of God coming in. This is why he then goes on to argue with them and reason with them. He's trying to say, see the gorilla. (laughs) Take a deep breath. How could I do this by the power of Satan? If I did this by the power of Satan, you know, no kingdom would stand. No, no, no kingdom could have sort of a, a rebel army going against that kingdom and last for very long. Your, your argument doesn't even hold up to logic. Your counting passes. The gorilla has walked through the scene and you've missed it. The kingdom of God is among you. Now, time doesn't me- permit me to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just say this. This way that Jesus is confronting them is a way that he's confronting some of you right now. It's a way that he's confronting us regularly. 
It's, it's how he continues to interact, how he continues uh, to, to expose blindness in us. He likes to put us in situations where we're confronted, where, where he says, hey, hey, watch that again. Did you not see the gorilla? Maybe some examples would be in order. Uh, ours is a culture that is obsessed with liberating special, especially sexual social norms, it seems to me. Ours is a time period where the idea of having sort of norms around sexuality seem to be a recipe for conflict. As soon as you say that you believe in anything that puts up social norms, all of a sudden people say, well, you're, you're, you're regressive. You are backwards. And this has become, in some senses, the, the passes that we count. One, two. You know, anything that hinders social, sexual sort of liberation and progress, well, then it must be wrong. And our general society is counting these passes. Three, four, five. And yet our Lord is willing to confront. And some of the ways he confronts is as we focus on liberation, he starts opening our eyes to seeing some problems. I had a neighbor a couple weeks ago, I'll keep the details vague in case they're here or they're listening, who asked me if I had seen the University of Toronto's training on consent, which I hadn't. It's not something I watch in my free time. He sent me a link. Let me just tell you that if you do premarital counseling with me or Lyndon at Christchurch Toronto, some of the details that we go into on what it means to be married have a whole lot of overlap with what consent looks like. I mean, it's incredible, the details with which consent takes place. It's almost like they need to sign their name on a legal contract to say they consent to any sexual activity. My neighbor says, isn't this kind of funny? It's kind of weird. You know, we had a ceremony where you signed your name, and it was a way of showing you consented <laughs> to sexual activity. It's called marriage. It did quite well for, for many generations. And now here we are in such a liberated, such a progressive society, that all of a sudden, it's gone so far now that we have to have this sort of ceremony around consent. Maybe I'm losing you, but try to hear me out. When you're counting passes of liberation, you say, I could never consider Christianity because it's so backwards around sexual ethic. It's, it's so lost. All of a sudden, Jesus comes and he confronts you and he says, hey, there's a gorilla on the scene. This liberation has created crazy problems. And the problems are so evident that now students arriving to the University of Toronto are learning about where the buildings are located, they're learning about how to access their email address, and they are learning on a seminar about consent, which more or less goes almost as far as to say you need signatures between parties to make sure there is true consent. And why am I sharing this? Am I trying to rip on consent policies? No, not, not, not the slightest. What I'm trying to say is this, is that this is how our Lord works. We get willful blindness, get focused on things, we start counting passes, that we miss the fact that he is, he is doing something in our world. He's pouring his grace into his, our world. He's, he's making himself known, and we just can't see it because we're counting passes. And he gives us times to confront us. Maybe just quickly one other, one other illustration. I know there's people in here who have been wronged by the church, legitimately wronged. And even if you haven't been wronged, it's not hard to flip open the newspaper or flip open the history books and see the ways in which the church has done great wrong to people. But something happens where many people start to walk away from Christianity in the name of these wrongs, where again, they're, they're counting passes. One, two, oh, look at this wrong. Three, they get to the Middle Ages. Four, five, six, seven, you know. Look at the evil the church has done. And yet, and yet, more often than not, God does something. He breaks into their life. And these people receive extreme kindness in the name of Christ out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Or maybe they're healed of something that they have been battling. Out of nowhere. They find hope. And they have a choice. Are you going to keep counting passes? Seven, eight, nine. Are you going to take a deep breath and look at what's going on? God is at work in this world. Something like greater than a gorilla has arrived on the scene, on the picture. Jesus is coming and he's confronting this willful blindness. And he's doing it to you right now. 
It's part of what it means to sit under his word. We all are prone towards this willful blindness, and he's getting right in your face. He's saying, you might be missing something. You might be distracted. You might be choosing to stay distracted. But don't neglect it long. And this is why he then gives us this warning. And the warning is one of the most difficult words in the Bible, verses 31 through 32, where he specifically warns about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. It's a bit of a strange passage. Time doesn't allow. But it's not like Jesus is saying, you can blaspheme me all you want, but you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're in trouble. What he's, what he's giving to these Pharisees is a very, very, very extreme warning. His logic is this. He's saying, if you look at the work of God's Spirit on this earth, and you conclude that that work must be the work of Satan, then you have cut yourself off from the channel, the means, the path by which God has and continues to always work. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. If you go to the hospital, and you're dying of a, a disease that's curable. And they say, it's very curable. All you have to do is take this particular treatment. And you say, oh, I, that, sorry. I read a website. I, I found a blog post about that treatment. It's uh, from a company that actually, like, wants to take over the world. And because of this treatment, you know, this is actually really evil. They're trying to change the way society works. And so, therefore, I won't take the treatment. The, the medicine's actually a poison. And you claim this to the doctors, and they can't force it in you. And you claim this. The very means by which you could be healed, has now, you've now cut yourself off from, and therefore you've condemned yourself. This is sort of the logic of what Jesus is saying. This is the spirit is the means by which God is at work in this world, and when you cut him off from working in your life, then you've cut yourself off from the medicine, the means from which you could be healed, and you stand condemned, and these words are strong. Condemned forever if you continue to turn and to reject these things. Jesus is not making excuses. Deliberate rejection of the work of God's spirit comes with great consequences. Now, this is a great warning, a great warning to those of us who are, who are prone towards willful blindness. It's a great warning because I know right now the Lord, by his Spirit, is working in some of your hearts to convict you of very serious sins, nagging you, telling you to, to turn this off, to find help, to seek accountability, or he's, he's working uh, in your heart, encouraging you and telling you things which you must cut out of your life, which will be destructive, which will bring death. The Spirit is probing you. He does it every Sunday. Whenever you open the Bible, it seems like it comes up, and there's a willful blindness that you're choosing of turning the page, shutting the Bible, moving on with your day, not dwelling on it. This passage is a great warning. It's a great warning. The logic is, is fairly simple. There's a way that you continue to harden your heart to God's Spirit's work in your life. At some point, you've cut yourself off from the very means or channel by which you receive all of the blessings of God. And Jesus is using the strongest terms possible to tell you this is a very, very serious thing that confronts anyone in front of us. He's telling the, the Pharisees in this particular passage, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they are in a unique privilege. They've without question seen God's Spirit work through the power of Jesus. And they're saying this is from Satan. And he's saying... There you go. You know, if the medicine's poison, then, then sure. If every time you're convicted of sins, you think, maybe that's Satan telling me I shouldn't do that. <laughs> maybe that's Satan coming into my life challenging me this way. It must be Satan. Be gone, Satan. You do that enough times. Willful blindness becomes real blindness, and you can't see clearly what you need to see. This is the warning. Finally, Jesus is going to give us a treatment. And the treatment is found in verse 33 and 36. Now, what do we make of verse 33? Make the tree good, 
and good fruit will come, or make the tree bad, and bad fruit will come. You'll know the tree by his fruit. What is Jesus arguing for? Well, don't forget the context that he's in. He's addressing the Pharisees, who he's called these brood of vipers, these wicked people who are out for the jugular, out for death. And he's confronting them about the words that they used. What words did they use? They attributed the work of God's Spirit through Jesus to the work of Satan. These words these, these bad words reveal a bad heart, okay? These, they can't see clearly, so therefore they can't speak clearly. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that this is your problem. You say these things because your heart does not want to be a part of the kingdom of God. Your heart does not want to be near your creator. Your heart actually wants to be quite distant, and that's why your mouth attributes my work to the, to, to the work of Satan, your hearts are hardened. They're in unbelief. They've rejected God's plan. Well, if this is what it looks like for bad fruit to manifest itself, what would it look like for good fruit to manifest itself? You would reverse the equation. You have to say there has to be something going on inside, in your heart, which allows you to speak words to attribute, for example, this healing to the work of God's Spirit through Jesus. When you're able to say those things, Jesus is saying that is birthed out of something that happens inside of you. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. I'm sure you've heard Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a certain belief that comes internally which allows words to speak as they are. There's a certain belief in the heart of the Pharisees which pushes their words out the way they do. I don't know if you know this, but um, maybe imagine with me. I learned a lot about grafting trees at one point in my life and um, the ways in which it's kind of a hobby for some people. But imagine you had a peach tree in your backyard and it's growing the most uh, delicious peaches Ontario offers. And this peach tree was your pride and joy. And your neighbor did a renovation and somehow in the renovation struck at the roots of the peach tree and the the tree started to wither up and you could tell it didn't have long, it was going to die. So what you do is you end up buying another peach tree, you plant it somewhere else, but the peaches are never quite the same. They're never as good. I don't know if you know this, but it is possible, and people do this. You're able to cut a branch off the good peach tree, the one who produced for you fruits that were unbelievable, and you're actually able to take that branch and graft it into the old peach tree, or into the new peach tree, sorry, in hopes that the new peach tree might bear fruit the way the old one did. You're able to graft branches into the base of this peach tree in, in hopes, in hopes that maybe there was something special about the fruit that this one produced. Somehow you could get it again despite the fact that you had to plant a new tree. Now, the illustration is not perfect. Some of you are better at gardening than me, so don't, don't overthink it. But what I'm trying to say is this. This is, this is the gospel, and this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that all of us were born into a tree named Adam. And we were meant to bear tremendous fruit, and yet, yet as these branches continue to go, and Adam's children continue to have children, and more and more children as branches were everywhere, there was no fruit for our Lord. And yet the story of the gospel is something incredible. That the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the very word of God comes and takes on flesh for us. And he becomes for us a tremendous and fruitful tree. And the promise of the gospel is this. That when you acknowledge that you you are on a dead end path, when you're on a tree that's soon to wither up and fully die, and when you see this about yourself and you repent of where you found yourself if you say this has got to change God I don't know what's wrong but fix me you find and often you find that God has already been doing this that he takes your dying branch and he engrafts it into Christ molds it into Christ 
So the very life and, and nutrients that Christ is sucking up from the grounds, all the benefits of his work, now begin to pulsate again through you and you begin to bear fruit again. This is how the gospel works. One other way they, the, the Bible speaks of it is, is your heart has been dead, it gets, it's made alive again. What is the treatment for willful blindness? It's acknowledging that you are pushing towards a willful blindness. It's, it's acknowledging that even that glimmer of light where you start to see that you are a limb that is not bearing fruit, that even that just might be the work of the farmer. Even that just might be the work of God's Spirit working in your life now. And rather than hardening your heart to it, continuing to learn to trust and depend and root your life in Jesus, that great tree. This is the hope of the gospel. Now, I should be abundantly clear because I've been brief. I intended to say much about these warnings not requiring you to be perfect but expecting you to bear fruit, and this is no small detail. Jesus isn't saying you'll be sinless as you get sort of engrafted into him. It's not sinless, but it is bearing fruit. And Jesus is saying your mouth, the way you speak, whether you confess Jesus as Lord or you become indifferent or blow him off, this will all be rooted on whether or not, there's, whether or not there is life in your heart. This, the, your heart, your insides will bear this fruit. This is the treatment for willful blindness. Let's end this way. If today you're flirting with moving towards willful blindness, maybe you've come into church and you've been indifferent for weeks upon weeks and you've grown bored and you fantasize about missing on Sundays and just maybe just removing church from your life, if this is the trajectory you're on, I would say right now cry out to Christ before it's too late and beg him to change you. My guess is if you feel even the slightest ounce of conviction in your life, he's already working in your life now. So hold on to, cling on to Christ. Seek his full forgiveness, which comes on the cross, where he paid for all of our sins, and beg him to work in you that you might bear fruit. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we know you won't let let us down. Would you make us a church that bears much fruit? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.